patient experience is not only necessary, it's the cornerstone of what we do. You know, we were created for a relationship. We were created to, to desire experience, to, to experience something, to feel. And patient experience is, is the cornerstone of that. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I'm joined by Lisa Duran. Lisa is an old friend of mine and the chief experience officer for the Inception Fertility Network. You might know Lisa from her team-focused patient experience programs that she has 15 years of experience in training and development, seven years specializing in women's health and infertility, has been the CEO of Reconceive Patient Experience Consulting Company, has worked for the DeJulius Group as a customer experience consultant and has been the director of business development for RMA of Texas, among other things. You've probably seen her speak at ASRM, at MRS, at a number of different meetings, including the Association for Reproductive Managers, of which she was the chair. And a fun fact that I didn't know about Lisa is that she was a professional ice skater in the ice skates. You learn something new about someone that you have known for years when you have them on the podcast. Lisa, welcome <laughs> to Inside Reproductive Health. Oh, thank you, Griffin. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You got into this role of patient experience, partly because it was your prior background, but it came from initially being director of marketing, director of business development for a fertility center. So does that mean that patient experience is necessary? to patient acquisition? You mean I just can't run ads and then <laughs> patients will come yeah. forever? <laughs> For sure. Well, the, you know, there's no doubt patient experience is a differentiator. And, you know, I actually, I'd love to tell you the story of how the patient experience consulting began. It's actually a really great story. So I was consulting for Dr. Ardondo at RMA of Texas in business development, marketing, just all kinds of things, whatever he needed. And, and he was very, of course, those of you who know Dr. Ardondo know that patient experience is his passion. And he really wanted to understand but he wanted his practice to be the foundation of it, be based around the patient experience. And so, you know, he said, let's hire the best to come in. Let's hire, you know, the Ritz Carlton to come in and talk to us about patient experience and, and, and how, you know, how important it is and, and some things that we can grab onto to, to, you know, to create that great experience. So he hired the Ritz Carlton and we all know that they are fabulous. And so a gentleman came in for four hours to talk about the guest experience at the Ritz Carlton. And it was a, it was a great talk. Although our team walked away going, gosh, you know what? Everybody wants to be at the Ritz-Carlton, but nobody wants to be at a fertility clinic, right? I mean, that's not where people dream of being. And so, you know, it was difficult to, to find relevancy in some of the, some of the teaching. And so, so, you know, so I reminded Dr. Ardondo that, that my background was training and development. I said, let me create something that's relevant to us, you know, to that, that person at the front desk, at the front desk at concierge, you know, when, when, when a patient is checking in and the phone is ringing and at the time someone 
you know, before EMR, EMR, you know, someone was handing him a chart, right? And just that multitasking and, and, you know, how you have a patient in front of you that's crying because, you know, of a negative pregnancy test. And the next patient that comes up and sits in front of you is celebrating that positive pregnancy test. And, you know, how do we navigate that? You know, how do we, how do we handle, you know, the constant switching of hats and the multitasking in our space? And that's how Reconceive was born. And it was born, actually, I didn't create the program. It was really the clinic altogether we did. And so that's how it started. And so we recognized pretty early on that that had to be, that has to be our differentiator and it has to be relevant to our day in and day out. It can't be the, you know, the, the fluffy stuff. It really has to be the, okay, how do we handle these situations? How do we deliver something, you know, that's difficult? You know, how do we de- deliver a difficult message? And then also, and then how do we turn around and celebrate that and respecting, you know, the other patient? And so, so it was, it's, it's been quite the journey and quite a learning process. I learned so much from all of the clinics that, that, that I used to go to and, and the, the group of clinics I'm in now. And so, yes, the patient experience is not only necessary, it's the cornerstone of what we do. You know, we were created for a relationship. We were created to, to desire experience, to, to experience something, to feel. And patient experience is, is the cornerstone of that. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because I think a lot of people think that means aesthetics or mm, uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. it might. But I remember one talk you gave, you were talking about high ceilings in yoga. And <laughs> it's just sort of, you know, it's just sort of like the customer experience for almost anything nowadays, right? Yeah. You were talking about experience. I think of getting your nails done and of someone that really <laughs> yeah. attended to you with great service because you knew he knew you were in a rush and that wasn't a fancy place or anything. It was just that mm-hmm. he was like really all about making sure that you you got the the service that you needed. And you talked a little bit about we need to get away from the idea of high ceilings and yoga. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. And I and I love that story because it's so real to me. You know, this is I'm gonna quote Dr. Ardundo and and one of his things that he says all the time that satisfaction equals performance minus expectation. So we find ourselves performing when we talk about the definition of patient experience or guest experience or customer experience. People think it's saying, you know, please and thank you. And there's so many more spokes to that wheel, and it's really understanding what the patient is expecting and then delivering on that. And, and I use the story of getting my nails done and many women go as, as a luxury, as a pampering session. They go maybe for the glass of wine and for the massage chair. And so I was not loyal to one nail clinic because I would go into a salon. I'd go into all the different nail salons and I wasn't loyal to I just whoever could take me because they didn't understand what my expectations were. And what satisfied me is very different. So I talked to the owner of the salon and he says to me, you know, why don't I see you here all the time? He said, we've got the high ceilings. Isn't that nice? We have the massage chairs. Isn't that nice? And I said, you know, those are wonderful, but those aren't important to me. He says, but, but I've got the wine. And I said, that's not important to me. And he says, you know, I, well, we, you know, we, we have solar and we have this. And I said, you know, those things aren't important to me. You have not asked me what's important to me. And when he said, what? And I said, I want to get in and out of there as fast as I can. So I want your fastest, best person. 
I said, but you've never asked me. And I've never found somebody that understood that. And so that goes back to understanding the patient's expectations. But your your question is a big one. Defining patient experience, there are many spokes to the wheel, but there are three things that are, I believe, are equally important when we're talking about patient experience. And the first one is going to be making it effortless. There's a great book called The Effortless Experience that talks about people won't necessarily be loyal because they've had a great experience. Because in today's economy and in in our fast-paced world, what is important to us is our making things effortless as well as a great experience. So if we can be efficient and make things effortless and uh, create an experience that doesn't require a lot of work on the patient's end, that is beautiful. So it's looking at processes. So that's, that, that's one of the big spokes to that wheel. Number two is making it fun and enjoyable and, and as sense of purpose for the team. We can teach the team the how-to, but if they don't have the heart to, the how-to goes away. And and it's a very short window. It's a very, it's a band-aid. It it doesn't sustain. So it's so the efficiency, it's making it effortless. It's making the team feel a sense of purpose and love what they do. And then of course, then there's the delivery and then understanding the expectations of the patient. So we can perform to their expectation and not just assume and perform for what we think they expect. This has to start from the top. And I see, mm. you know, I could see training a practice or a practice group on some of the tactics of how to, for the delivery part, and, you know, ostensibly teaching them how to meet expectations. But at the end of the day, if they have, if, if someone is in charge that does not have this in their priorities list, or yes. even worse, their behavior is toxic to it or there's a nurse manager or a practice manager that is not happy about something new or wants to do things the way they've always done it or doesn't have their heart focused mind in this etc yeah i could see that just imploding yes Yes, absolutely. And and I have to tell you, and uh, that was one of my biggest challenges in consulting when I was consulting is that, you know, I would have practices ask me to come in and, and do a workshop. And I would always tell them, I said, you know, a patient experience program or a patient experience culture, you don't create that culture from a workshop. And the willingness to invest in a, in a culture changing program is very hard to come by. And there's a lot of people that believe that it's the right thing. And there's a a lot of people that will say and agree with you, yes, patient experience is the cornerstone. It's the differentiator, but their willingness to invest in tools and in training their supervisors, anyone in a supervisory role to coach and to hold accountable. They're very far and few between. I've gone to some amazing practices who've had great intentions, who just didn't quite understand or, or necessarily wasn't the right investment for them at the time. I'm not quite sure, but, but that, that account of the coaching and the redirecting are the most important pieces in, 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 in a program like this or a culture changing program like this and bearing fruit. You know, again, we can teach the, the how to, we can even, even, you know, uh, sweetly break their hearts for that, for the, the heart to, but if there's nobody paying attention to it, then, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to sustain. And one of my favorite quotes is from if Disney ran your hospital, 
And he says in there, people don't do what organizations expect. They do what's paid attention to. And that is so true. That's you know one of the reasons why I, I joined Aspire Fertility, which is Inception Fertility, is our CEO, TJ Barnesworth, he had an entire guest experience manual that when I came on board, he believed in it so much. He invested in, in, in the Disney Institute himself and his whole executive team going and creating this amazing program. And so, you know, my job is to bring that to life, of course, and to continue to add to it and, and, and expand it. But, but having that leader, having that person that truly believes in it and not just says it, but also invest in it through training supervisors and recognizing and redirecting that is the secret sauce. Most definitely. I think that that's an advantage of large fertility networks. I want to see if you agree, because Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem, I've written about this a lot, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Part of the problem that a lot of independent practices are facing is because there's not someone in that leader role, because I've got my accountability chart on my wall right here. It shows who's the visionary, who's the integrator, and then we've got operations, sales, and marketing, finance, and legal, all the seats that come underneath them. More than one, one person can be in more than one seat, but one seat cannot be occupied by more than one person. And the goal is, because I'm a someone that built my company completely organically, is that I'm phasing myself out of the other seats until I get to the top. The problem with independent practices very often is that that physician owner or the main physician partner is in several different yes. seats or at the top, there's, yes. a, there's a practice that's split four different ways. Maybe mm-hmm. the equity isn't totally 25, 25, 25, 25, but there's not a clear role of like, okay, but who decides what the direction of yeah. the company is? And I think, I think it, it, that problem manifests itself in so many ways, not the least of which is when you can have someone leading the company as a visionary that says, okay, now, doctor, you are the medical director. You are in charge of this entire branch. Lisa, you are in charge of experience. I really think, Lisa, that as fashionable as it is to say, and we just had David Sable on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I got a, a few emails that said, you know, this business investment into the fertility field is bad. I got a lot of feedback from that episode. A lot of people that were interested in Dr. Sable's commentary, but a lot of people that just don't like the idea of business having this merger into our field. And I, and, and there probably are bad things that come with it sometimes. There are bad things that come with it sometimes, but this cannot be understated, the ability yeah. to, to have an organization that is able to adapt in these ways. So talk a little bit about that, about the, the leadership structure. And I mean, you, did, you talked about the practices you visited, but it could be a real advantage to structure in that way. Yeah, no, that's that's a great conversation to have. You know, one of the many things that I'm learning is, and certainly I, I don't mean to keep bringing it back to TJ, but he's he came from oncology, and and he, you know, there was there were you know there was talk out there. Well, this isn't a fertility guy, this isn't a fertility guy, right? And it was really interesting because I just kind of you know smiled and went, okay, you know, I have to tell you how much we've learned 
from oncology and some of the great things. And I, and I find, you know, the blend of having people who have been in the fertility space for that's necessary because it is a very different journey and that is valuable and having a mix of the two. And as mergers happen and as business people come into the fertility space, as long as they, they have an understanding of the journey and TJ and Margaret were patients themselves. So they personally went through the journey. So that was, that was a, you know, a unique and unique thing for them. But, but if they understand the journey, wow, we could really learn a lot. One of the things that, that I encountered as hurdles is that in, in trying to teach patient experience or, or, you know, trying to encourage and equip for changing culture is that we do the same things the same way, you know, and in medical in general. And one of the things that we're really tackling right now, and that I know other practices have as well, but other groups as well, and especially as you get larger, are, are the phones, right? When you think about, you know, our structure on the phones have been the same way throughout medical for as long as we all can remember, right? You know, some practices have, you know, the front desk, the, uh, the concierge or patient advocates, whatever you want to call them, answer the phones and some may have call centers and some, but what happens is when you really start to dive into our patient experience over, over the phone and, and the amount of calls that get missed or abandoned, we, it's mind blowing how we miss out on delivering a great patient experience the first time and even on the follow-up, right? And my point being is, you know, other industries, you know, you can call certain companies and you know, you're going to get a live answer and you know, you're going to get a pickup or, or at least, you know, you're going to be able to speak to someone. You're not going to be transferred for it to a voicemail. Why in fertility have we continued to do it the same way? Why do we continue to have phone calls go right to nurses' voicemails? You know, they can't answer them. They're, they're a help. And that's exactly what they should be doing. Why are we expecting that they're also, you know, that they're, they're also able to pick up, you know, 30 calls a day, you know, why aren't we looking at things differently? And that's what sometimes some of those outside perspectives can bring when, when we, when we just bury ourselves in, in the, this is how we've always done it. And nobody understands fertility because it's very different. That's the, that's a danger zone for us. And so I think, I really believe that the mergers and, and some of the partnerships that come from the outside are very, very valuable in, in, in looking at things differently. I think it's so important to, to see how other industries, other categories are doing things because you can see a pattern that would be so beneficial. To, yeah. We do it all the time. I really pay very little attention to what other agencies are doing, other internet marketing agencies mm. are doing because I, I generally think it's useless. I pay so much attention to what infertility patients are doing. We're obsessed with it. Yeah. We sponsor a lot of patient-facing programs or events, even though we don't have any patient-facing offerings, simply because we want that understanding for our own clients to be able to, mm -hmm. to develop marketing programs for. But there's so much in the in the exterior that you could learn from. And I think that one of the challenges then for a larger fertility center would be making sure that it's the same experience at location A, which might be on the completely different mm -hmm. side of the country, location B. The one advantage that a 10-person single doc REI practice has, as long as they're really good people that treat their people well, they're probably going to have a pretty good patient experience as long as, you know, it's, there's just not like any big process issues missing. But I can tell when I, when we've got clients that are 
you know, they've only got 10 or 12 people on staff. There's one doc, but yeah. everybody in there is just so sweet and kind. Yes. Everybody's yes. probably going to be all right. Right. Yes. But then as you start to scale, that's when we've got to make sure that the same quality and care and yes. kindness and attention are at location B, C through E. How do you do that? Yeah, you know, and that's a really good question. Earlier, you talked about, you know, the the benefit of the of the merging of practices and how, you know, we talked about how there are great advantages to that. And, and I'm going to step back and talk about those beautiful, sweet boutique practices, right, that that have not decided to emerge and grow and have have decided to stay in their, you know, in, in their hometowns and certain. And there is there. I've, I've known many practices like that, that just deliver a great patient experience and are beautiful boutique practices and exactly and those that choose to grow and through a merger or an acquisition yeah how do you scale that right and so one of the things one of the things one of the mistakes I think we make is expecting to scale it exactly the way they did it one of the things that that I am learning throughout the mergers and acquisitions that I've been part of is that we if we expect to standardize everything including the experience that is not a realistic expectation and it hurts morale and it's, 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 it's very challenging and it just, it can be very frustrating. And so the way that I believe and the way that, you know, we are certainly going about our new merger with the, the wonderful Prelude Network is that, you know, it's important that the personalities keep, that the practices keep their personalities. Every practice, every demographic has their personality, right? And has something different that they bring. So it's important that we honor that and that we that we we keep that we preserve that. And then just adapting some things that might help them and and see what can enhance that. Instead of going in and trying to change everything, how to create how do we create continuity in the things that will enhance, you know, what they've done, what everyone has done very well and yet keep, you know, and to be able to standardize things and preserve their their great culture. So, you know, it's really a blend. It's not one or the other. It's really a blend and every practice is different. And some practices may, may need more integration of standardizing some things and other practices just may need a little bit. Right. And so I think, you know, the more we can standardize perhaps our branding and our messaging to the patients from a marketing standpoint, you're the genius in that. And so I won't even claim to speak to that, but I would think from a patient's perspective, if we can look and sound the same from a marketing standpoint, that is valuable. And then when they come inside, they feel the different personality of the practices, you know, depending on where they're at. I think that's the sweet spot. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing 
a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. Is one way of standardizing without standardizing. So another way, instead of just everybody has to do A, B, C, D, and E, and that's what the patient experience is, is another way of having the consistency of the patient experience yes. involve firing people, getting the wrong people off of the bus. Because one of the questions mm-hmm. that my creative director, Ashley, had was, have you found yourself being challenged by staff who think the patient experience doesn't make a difference in your consulting or in anything? And And I think of an interviewee that I had for a project manager that had worked for really high-end agencies at much bigger agencies and for bigger companies and was really impressive with his project management skills. This guy could would really take care of certain projects for us, but he was a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So one of my my criterion is it doesn't matter how good someone is. They legitimately have to enjoy helping other people or they cannot be, if they can't play nice with the other girls and boys, they can't be on the team period because that sabotages meritocracy in my opinion. So one, you know, in answering that question, have you found yourself being challenged by, by staff that aren't bought in? And two, does that, does standardizing without standardizing, making the patient experience consistent involve getting the wrong people off the bus? Well, sure, definitely. I think though, when you talk about standardizing, it's it's really a culture, right? It's really, and patient experience is really a culture. You know, if they are not using certain verbiage, you know, we're, we're not going to script everyone, right? You want the spirit of it. You want the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, right? And you, you so so if they don't have, and you've heard this, and this is probably overused, if they don't have the DNA, right? You certainly, yes, most definitely. But that, again, goes back to the accountability of the coaching and the redirecting. And and that that's that middle management level. You know, if we are, if we are expecting the doctors who are running the businesses or the, if, you know, especially the practices where, 
where the doctor is really running the business, if we're expecting him to make or her to make those decisions, you know, that's, that's, that becomes very difficult because how do you assess that? Right. Yes. And so those people in that, in that middle supervisory role to be coaching that and to be redirecting, uh, celebrating when it's happening, redirecting when it's not. And when it's not, you know, a redirect is just like a performance, a behavioral issue, right? I mean, if it's a constant redirect and it's not happening, it's treated just like, you know, being late or right, or not doing something right from a, from a procedure or a policy or a guideline standpoint. And so it should be treated just like that. And absolutely. And I have gone into practices and where, you know, you have the majority of them going, yes. And then you could see the ones, the ones, you know, that are skeptical or negative or just don't quite believe. But you know what, what's really interesting is I find that a lot of time in my experience that those people, it's not that they don't believe is that they've been disappointed so many times that they haven't felt heard, that they haven't felt that, or their processes have been, they, they're just so buried in them that they look at me like, are you kidding me? You know, I don't have time for that. And so my heart, you know, my heart certainly goes out to them. So I have, I have found that I'm a lot less judgmental in that area where I would, I prefer to really dive into, okay, you know, hurt people, hurt people, right? What, what is the root of that? You know, what is that? Why is it that you're not um, wanting to, you know, there are two, two reasons why people don't do things. They don't want to, or they don't know how. And if they don't want to, there's a reason. And so it's discerning those two things. First of all, making sure it's not a, I don't know how. First of all, and then if they don't want to dig a little deeper into that, why do you not? And if they just don't, and then they are not right. Absolutely. You know, there's a better fit for you someplace else. This is not the place for you. And we all have been part of cultures where it takes one toxic person to ruin, ruin an entire. And that's actually one of the last teaching modules that I, that I came up with before I stopped the consulting is on gossip and toxic culture and how, you know, that is, is detrimental to, to a healthy culture and how we, when we allow that, how that transcends and translates into the way we deliver and how the way, you know, everybody delivers their patient experience because internally, We've got to deliver a great experience to each other if we, you know, in order to, to do it externally. So if somebody internally is gossiping or undermining or being passive aggressive or any of those things, you know, that is not going to work. And, and if they internally are doing that, then we can't expect them to externally deliver. You're right. It's much better to discern the culture, yeah. especially if it's one that is willing to adapt before just axing people. I guess I'm in the position of <laughs> I've I've been doing the discerning and then and then I'll ax if if I feel it's appropriate. And that's I the right to... thing. Oh, I'm sorry, Griff. I'm sorry. That 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 is I think it it can't be understated right. that there there's two maybe you see more, but I see two temptations for keeping the wrong people on the bus. The first is that I don't want to let them go for whatever mm -hmm. reason because I feel bad because they work mm -hmm. for me for however long because they are nice in these other areas or for, for whatever reason it might be. I, I don't have that problem. I will let people go if they're not right for the organization. Yes. What I have had more and what I think a lot of our what, uh, what a lot of the people listening have also faced is that replacing them might not be super easy, especially if it's in you know, nurses aren't always easy to replace. 
embryologists are not easy to mm. replace. There's a lot of people in our practices and labs that are in their positions because there's not that many people that can mm-hmm. do them. And so I think that keeps people from letting the wrong people go. I don't know if you see any other reasons, but those are the two reasons. Yeah, well, most definitely the fear of not being able to find somebody with fertility experience, right? And and, and that's a whole nother subject of succession planning. You know, one of the best things we could do is rise people up from inside, right? And so, because we we know they have a heart for it and we know they they understand the journey. And so there's such a big fear of, I can't let this person go because they're, they're the only ones that can X, Y, Z. Right. And, and so that's hard. But again, in, in my experience and just summarizing that when we see somebody that is not willing, digging a little deeper into why is it compassion fatigue? Right. What is it? What is it? Why? And and, uh, is, you know, is, is that fixable? And if it's not, yes, don't waste any time. It's, you know, not not a good fit. But I have I have personally experienced instances where I would have initially made a judgment and without digging really understood the underlying uh, resistance and knowing that that's something that could have been fixed and really turned around. I want to make sure that we touch on how patient experience just becomes part of the standard mm-hmm. of care. Part of the reason why you're on, not the reason why you're on the podcast, but the reason why I remembered at that time was that I was having a, an interview on this show with Dan Nayot from Toronto, and we were talking about you, oh. talking about a, an application that we had learned from you regarding personality mm-hmm. tests. And he, he, you know, I always looked at him as just the doctor that every patient wants to have. And in many cases, I think that's true. But he also did say, you know, for some people, they don't want my style. They don't want a nice guy. They want somebody who's just going to give it right. straight quick in and out. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's fair too. And we talked about the concept of having Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. personality matched patient to provider, maybe even uh, patient to provider to support staff. So maybe you can talk about that and just in general, sure. how patient experience just becomes the standard. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, and I'll speak specifically to why I did the personality profiles is, you know, one of the things that I learned throughout consulting is that we you know, differ, of course, we're, we're, we're all one body, but we're made of different parts and we all receive information differently. And, and, you know, I'm a very big picture thinker. And when somebody is, comes to me with a lot of details after the third detail, I'm squirreling on them, right? I'm all over the place. And so I I thought about that and I thought, gosh, if I were a patient sitting with a doctor who is very detailed, I know that I would walk out of there so overwhelmed because I would have squirreled on her or him after the third detail. I would have called the next day to say, to, you know, say I did, I I have questions when I'm sure that those questions were already answered. And so, you know, the original thought process was, well, you know, can a personality profile really help us understand who our patients are and match them up with, you know, with a physician and a team that would, you know, that would be best, best suited for them. And there are two questions on the Myers and Briggs that I really honed in on. And the one is, are you, how do you see information? You know, are you big picture or are you detailed? That's a big one. You know, you've got a, a detailed person. Can please, I interrupt please. for a second? Go. I love this story. <laughs> I love telling you. I remember when you had us do this exercise uh-huh. at, it was one of the arm meetings and you separated the group. You said, if you receive information yeah. by detail, go to this side yep. of the room, big picture folks stay over here. I'm I'm in the big picture group and I'm thinking, 
all right, what's what's really <laughs> going to be the difference? They had us look at a portrait where you know, there's some stuff going on. I think it's like somebody at a yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and the detailed person. <laughs> but, but then you then you had us then you had us get together the mm-hmm. big picture folks. We wrote down what we saw. You had the detailed people write down what they saw, and the, <laughs> their summary. Uh, our summary was like. A cold Christmas <laughs> night. Someone has just returned from being outside all yeah. day and now is warming up by the toasty mm-hmm. fire of their family home. <laughs> like, and the detail people were like, we see six candles. <laughs> yeah. around the room. 7.15 on the clock. Yeah, it was 7.15 on the clock, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, yeah, no, that's a great example. And I love doing that exercise because that demonstrates exactly how we can look at something and see it completely different. And how often does that happen with our patients? So, but if we go back to internally, how often does that happen in communication, you know, with each other internally? So it really works both ways. And so that picture of detailed versus, or that category of detailed versus big picture, that's an important one. The other one is, is how do you like to plan ahead? You know, and, and, you know, I I talk about this, you know, drives my daughter crazy because she's a planner. I I drive her crazy. She's a planner. She likes to make a plan and stick to it. She doesn't want options. She wants to know what to do. and, and, And that's what we're going to do. And then I, you know, and then there are the, the perceivers, which are more go with the flow, more spontaneous changes, a little bit easier for them. And they want options. We want options. Right. And so she, you know, she would say, okay, pick me up at five. I'd, you know, I'd I'd get there at at, five Oh five. And she said, the plan was five. Right. And I'd be like, really seriously, you know, but again, how that relates that patients, you know, some want, you know, the physician to say, this is the plan. This is exactly what you need to do. And then some, you know, want more options and this is my recommendation and here's some options for you. So if you knew those two things about patients, if you knew if they were detailed or big picture, and if you knew how they, you know, how they like to plan ahead, wow, you can really customize a great experience, right? With the, you know, with the, and, and even if it's not with it, with, with the physician, with that same personality, if, even if they just understood it and could really make a big difference. And we actually played with that when I was with RMA of Texas, Dr. Ardondo, we actually did a two question Myers and Brig in our new patient paperwork and the doctors loved it. And it would, it, it, they were able to customize the, the new patient appointment. Now let's talk about from, remember I talked about the effortless experience and how processes are important, how that helps the processes. You know, every practice, when I go into practice, say, how many of you here deal with wait time issues, right? And everyone raises their hand. How many of you, you know, the doctor's running behind, you know, hands all over the place. So we know the doctor doesn't run behind. We know they're spending additional time with patients, but what the, what the personality profile allowed for those big picture patients that instead of an hour appointment, it was 45 minutes. And so that gave them a little bit more margin for those detailed patients that needed a little bit more time. So we were able to look at efficiencies and we were able to look at, you know, our processes and how that helped, how how that helped our processes. So there's, you know, there are many good things that come out of it. And, and of course, internally and people just understanding each other internally. So I want to point out to the listening audience, how much there is here and how important this is to consider. And it's not just (laughs) yoga, which I think patient experience sometimes thought of as that it really affects the standard of care in this way that if you had that match with patients how how much easier would that make treatment would it make communication with 
the patients, wouldn't make the burden on your staff. So Lisa, you've done this for a lot of clinics. You've, you've consulted with small practices. You've worked in medium-sized practices. Now work for a network. How would you want to conclude with everything that's going on in our field? Where do you want to see patient experience go? And how would you want to conclude? Oh, that's a great know? question, Griffin. I, I think, again, in this season, this is a new season for me as well. I think I would conclude this by, by challenging everyone, including myself, to not look at things the way we've always looked at them, is to really look differently and, and really strive to understand the patient's expectations. But in order to do that, and in order to, no matter how much information we understand the patient, the first place we need to start is in internal culture. And if there's anything that, uh, that you take away from today, it would be to make an investment in your internal culture, in your team, in, in really understanding what their needs are and understanding what their expectations are. You know, we talk about understanding patient expectations, but what about their team? What about your team? You know, they they expect us to, to give them all the tools that they need to be successful. They want the margin to be able to deliver a great patient experience. If we don't give a margin to do that, if our processes are hindering them from being able to do that, we can invest in patient experience programs till we're blue in the face, right? But really understanding our teams, understanding their hearts, understanding their challenges, understanding their expectations and um, and and that being a constant part of what we do and that is 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 checking in with them all the time and how can we help you to deliver a great patient experience how can we make this a great place for you to want to come to work every day how can we impact your life and be more than just work how can we be a family that's what I would conclude with Lisa Duran chief experience officer of inception fertility Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be able to talk about this with you all. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.